0: Welcome to Songcraft, Spotlight on Songwriters, a bi-weekly podcast featuring in-depth conversations with and about the creators of lyrics and music that stand the test of time. I'm Scott B. Beaumar. And I'm Paul Duncan. Songcraft is part of the American Songwriter Podcast Network, which can be found at americansongwriter.com. To make sure you don't miss an episode, please take a moment to subscribe to our show via Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You
1: can also keep up with us on social media by searching for
0: one word, Songcraft Show, or visit us at songcraftshow.com. Our guest on this episode of Songcraft is Rami Yakub, one of the most influential Swedish songwriters and producers of the last two decades. He joins us in a few moments to talk about his career from early Britney Spears classics such as Baby One More Time to boy band hits such as One Direction's What Makes You Beautiful to recent smashes such as Lady Gaga and Ariana Grande's double platinum chart topper Rain On Me. Part One. Well, if you guys have been listening to the show the last couple weeks, you've heard us talk about the 4th Annual St. Augustine Songwriters Festival down in St. Augustine, Florida that's coming up October 22nd through October 24th. Uh, You've heard us talk about it, but today we have uh, a special guest, the actual founder of the Songwriters Festival, Arliss Albritton, uh, joins us right now from Nashville. Arliss, uh, welcome.
2: Hey, thanks for having me, guys. How are y'all? We're doing good. Doing good. Excellent. I just want
1: to start off by asking you Saint Augustine is actually one of my favorite writers. Will he be appearing at the festival?
2: <laughs> well mr. St Augustine no will not be there. He has passed long ago
0: <laughs> Oh, oh man. all right well yeah oh well but I bet so yeah tell us tell us a little bit about uh um how you got this idea to launch this festival in the first place
2: well uh you know i, I I've been going to Key West Songwriters Festival for years for years many many years and um Charlie Bauer, who owns and operates that, asked me to come on and start helping him out and running a a bunch of his stages for him. And I just started falling in love with it. And I was just, you know, it's hard to get into Key West. It's a little pricey. So I'm like, where can I take this festival into the coolest city ever where it's accessible from different places? And that's what I did. I picked St. Augustine, Florida, and it's been amazing ever since.
0: Are you a a Florida native yourself, or or what kind of drew you to that area?
2: I am. No, I'm a Florida native, but I'm on the west coast of Florida, so I'm, I'm from Palmetto, Florida, which is near the Anna Maria Island and all that stuff, so...
1: You know, and we know, obviously, there's a list of of top writers that are going to be playing rounds uh, at this festival, uh, but I'm curious about sort of the atmosphere around the whole thing, you know, not, not even just the showcases themselves, but is there kind of a networking aspect to this, a relational aspect where people are hanging together and getting to know one another during the day as well?
2: Oh, very much so. There's a lot of um, young writers that come to hang with the more experienced writers. There's lots of publishers and those guys that come with their writers as well. Um, so, you know, you'll be most, it's, it's great because a lot of the writers go to all the other writers rounds. And so you'll be sitting there watching Bobby Pinson when, you know, like Justin Wilson is in the audience watching and having a drink or two, and they're just cutting each other oh. up and it's a good time. Uh, and all the writers are so sociable. It, that's what's so cool about it. Songwriters are just there to have a blast. They don't get that the the you know the famousness of a of artist of these number 1 songs they write so they love it they take it all in cuz they are the big hit down there you know they're the big artists
0: and now you are a songwriter yourself you've had some cuts with some pretty amazing folks like jamie johnson and gosh luke Bryan. i mean you you, you've you've kind of lived the dream in terms of uh you know going to nashville and and making it happen so what do you hope to to give back in a way um with this festival to to maybe be an inspiration or whatever to to other people who might have that same kind of dream Yeah, that's that's
2: exactly what this is for. It's for the up and comers to kind of mingle in with the super pros. But it also um, I know this sounds weird, but I was telling David Lee this, who's a big songwriter, too. You know, back in the day, I just said songwriters really don't have a voice. They're always behind the scenes. They never get to come out. And express themselves and tell everybody about the song they wrote. Um, it's always you know somebody like a Kane Brown or somebody that's being interviewed and they talk about the song. And this gives them the attention and the forefront to just go out and talk about the songs and tell the story behind the songs. And then you don't necessarily have to be the best singer. You just sing the song you wrote the way you felt it, and it just it crosses a different path of of hearts when it hits people, um, different than like if a main artist sings it when you hear a songwriter singing,
1: you know, I love this because it's almost like you guys are taking the bluebird on tour, you know, for for people that aren't in Nashville. Yeah. And they don't have a chance to go see around, you know, know, once a week or every couple of weeks. And and it really is an experience to see a songwriter around. And like you say, the people that actually wrote the song, sharing their stories, there's just a different experience. Isn't there hearing a writer sing their own song?
2: Oh, my gosh. And it's emotional. I mean, it could even be, you know, this was about my mom who passed away from cancer or this could be this. I wrote this my senior year of college with all my frat boy buddies. And, you know, it's it's such a diverse uh, interest for people and, and it's, it touches everybody it's really awesome
0: very cool well we want to encourage our listeners to check out the festival you can go to st augustine com to get all the details and if whether you live in florida you're looking to make a little road trip uh, that is coming up pretty soon october 22nd through october 24th um, so get down there see arlis have a great time it's going to be very cool
2: Yes, come on, everybody. Come on down. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Part two. Well, Scott, for all the fun we have around here,
1: one of my least favorite parts of what we do is- Oh, I'm
0: glad you're finally going to say it when we go to lunch with each other. That's it, what it is. It's Having awkward. to
1: spend quality time with you is yeah. a real chore.
0: I, I was wondering if you were going to bring it up. I'm so <laughs> glad you did.
1: Yeah, I wanted to do it in public, <laughs> you know, just to make sure there were no awkwardness. Um, but- uh, Talking about musicians and legends that have passed away, yes. uh, it's always just like, oh, just, mm-hmm. you know, it just sucks. And, you know, this past week, Charlie Watts. Yeah. Which just feels, in some ways, that feels more than just the loss of a musician. It feels like something significant about an era and about that band.
0: Oh, man. It's, you know, the Stones are coming to L.A. Yeah. Um, And I had bought tickets and... Um, then they announced that Charlie wasn't going to be playing with them on this tour. This is before he passed away. And I, uh, took to social media because I, I figure most people are waiting to see what my take is on, on almost yeah, everything. Sure. They're just waiting. What's he going to say? And, uh, Taste maker. yeah, basically. Um, so I, I basically went on social media and was like, you know what? I might not have bought these tickets. Um, if I knew that Charlie wasn't going to be with them because there are certain bands that kind of aren't that band without the drummer. Now there's mm. not, you know, there's probably a lot of bands for me that it wouldn't be a deal breaker. But in my mind, like if you're gonna see Metallica, Lars kind of needs to be playing drums. Yeah, you know, if you're gonna see the band, Yvonne Helm is the drummer, right? And Rolling Stones, Charlie Watts is a drummer. Without Charlie, I'm uh, is it the Rolling Stones? You know, I mean, uh, it feels feels off.
1: Well, I think it also kind of has to do with the timing. Uh, if Charlie Watts had died in 1975. Right, and the Stones continued on. Then that would be a little different, you know. I I say that thinking about the Who. You know, I've seen the Who a bunch of times, and obviously without Keith Moon. Yeah. Uh, But it's still a great experience because that's kind of become the Who. Right. I think now you're looking at you know just a few more years of Stones touring. Oh, by the way, we've always said that the Stones made tour until 2075.
0: I saw them in 1994 because I was like, "This is it. This has got to be be the the last." last Yeah. Yeah.
1: Um.
0: but you know now
1: i feel like there's something to i'm glad they're doing the tour and a chance to kind of give charlie tribute because right. it would be sad if he just passed and there were no you know moments when 50,000 people at once get to kind of pay tribute to to right. Charlie. So I, I think that there's going to be a poignancy to the tour because of that.
0: Yeah, I'm kind of more interested now in going, knowing that Charlie's no longer with us, rather than just Charlie isn't able to do right. the tour. Um, because I think, yeah, there, there will be sort of that collective spirit. And, you know, the way that he played drums is interesting. And if you're a drummer, you, you well know this. But um, Charlie played very much... Uh, like almost pushing the beat. Where like mm-hmm. a guy like Lee Von Helm played kind of on the backside of the beat. It yeah. had this real laid back feel. Charlie kind of pushed it, and he would you know hit the hi hat on every beat except the snare. Yeah. Beat. he would take <laughs> off the the hi hat to hit the snare so that snare just popped. There was yeah. like nothing else you know. No competition. Yeah, and not many drummers play that way. And no,
1: and I bet engineers loved it. <laughs> 'Cause you could isolate that snare. Right. You could compress it. You could do whatever yeah. you needed to it without the hi hat being in the way. Yeah. It's also interesting because you hear so much about Charlie being a rock time wise, and he was. And when you're doing sort of extra machinations and you're playing, you know, the fact that you're holding time so well while lifting the hand off the hat every right. time is almost more remarkable to me anyway. Yeah. Um also, you know, the the thought of him playing kind of on the front of the beat is really interesting when you look at the fact that, that uh Keith <laughs> right Is a couple of days Behind the beat <laughs> Right And yeah. I think that's the Stones sound
0: It is You know Like you never heard Like a solo Keith Richards thing Or a solo Mick Jagger thing That captures What the Stones had Right And um, I heard Don Was one time give a talk. He was producing the reissue version um, of the Exile on Main Street album, and I went to the Grammy Museum uh, with my dad, who was out here visiting, to hear Don Was like play some clips of some of the outtakes and stuff that he had found in the vaults, and talk about the stones. Mm-hmm. And he described the stones, and I'm not going to do this justice, but he said it's like a bowl, like the shape of a bowl. <laughs> and he was saying, you know, because the vocal falls here on the bowl, the bass falls here the drums fall here the rhythm guitar falls here and he talked about how the way the stones music sounds it's as if the music is swishing around in this bowl and no other group of musicians could have created that same thing and i listened to a song like uh beast of burden It's you get that slinky incredible guitar intro and then when charlie's drums kick in which kick in in a weird way it's not what you would expect it's a perfect uh, example of what I think he was trying to explain that it's the, the you you put these parts together and it creates something that you know they, they all needed each other to make it work yeah
1: you know and Charlie also kind of had that image of you know he was kind of a jazz guy he yeah. was uh, oh it seemed like he was a little bit too sophisticated for rock and roll right he was just sort <laughs> right. of like he's above it all yeah kind yeah. of and and maybe he kind of stayed on the front of the beat. Because he was just able to be done with the song like a millisecond faster than everybody else. <laughs>
0: <laughs> right. yeah, let's just move this along, fellas. Yeah. <laughs> I have a martini to drink. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, and there's a great story. And this was this story was kind of going around after Charlie died. But there's a story about uh, at some point in the 70s when Mick Jagger was drunk and he wakes up Charlie in the middle of the night on the phone and tells him to get down there for something. And, you know, Charlie's like, dude, I'm asleep. And Mick <laughs> goes, you're my drummer. Yeah. And Charlie goes and he goes down and punches Mick in the face and says, you're my lead singer. But the best part of the story is that he gets out of bed. He showers. He puts on a suit with like cufflinks. He puts on cologne like he's it's this very gentlemanly sort of way of going to punch a guy in the face like, you know, I don't relish this. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, but, uh, you've put me in a position. I have to do this. It's like, even he was even classy when like punching out Mick Jagger. He's like,
1: where's my punching suit? (laughs) (laughs) You know, speaking of bands that didn't always get along, uh, we also lost another icon from a band that didn't always get along. Yes. Uh, the Everly Brothers, yeah, Don and Everly. I, actually, they they might not have ever gotten along. Yeah,
0: I don't I don't know if they did. In the grand tradition of Simon and Garfunkel or uh, <laughs> Noel and Liam Gallagher, they yeah. uh, they they were like oil and water, I think.
1: Um, you know, I was sad to see Don passing, and part of it again is because kind of an end of an era type thing. Uh, just such an influential, important group. Um, but I also, you know, personally, I, I you know, my dad has has passed away, and I, I was thinking about how sad my dad would be. That Don Everly died, and it made me twice as sad. Yeah, um, because I, there is something, I, you know, maybe it's because I'm advancing in years myself, sadly. <laughs> um, but you start seeing like just things change, you know, yeah. and people that meant something to you growing up, and they they pass away, or they they stop making music, or, or whatever, and and thinking about my dad and his generation, uh, you know, Buddy Holly, Elvis, yeah. uh, so many of them gone, and. You know, uh, Phil Everly had passed away before anyway. Just to see Don go, it's like, man, along with Orbison and all of them. Like, I don't
0: know who's left. Well, I'll tell you who's left. Uh, The only person to still be alive with Don Everly's passing. Hmm. That means there is now only one person who is still alive from the inaugural class of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, which included people like Chuck Berry and others that you just mentioned, Buddy Holly, Elvis. Yeah. Uh, The only man still alive is Jerry Lee Lewis. And wow. at the time of that induction, I think we all would have put our bets on Jerry Lee would be the next to go. He yeah. has somehow survived uh all those guys. Well, it's yeah, amazing. just
1: but Keith Richards is still alive and Charlie Watts is gone. I mean Yeah, that's it, nuts. Yeah, Vegas odds. Yeah.
0: <laughs> right. Yeah, Whitney Houston is gone, but but Jerry Lee Lewis remains. Like Tom Petty's gone, Madonna's gone, Prince is gone. Yeah. Jerry Lee Lewis is still alive. That's that's insane.
1: That is crazy. And Elvis is still alive.
0: <laughs> right. But, but we're not supposed to know that.
1: Right. Right. Right.
0: Yeah. So don't mention that on the podcast. That's just when we go to the <laughs> island, we spend a little time with the king. It's just between us.
1: You know, the final uh, passing of a legend that we have to talk about today is of Tom T. Hall. Yeah. Uh, and that's one that has kind of personal resonance uh, for both of us um, because we interviewed Tom. You you actually interviewed Tom. Yeah. Uh, I was part of talking about it afterwards. <laughs> <laughs> But um, th- that was a, not only a great interview, um, but one that we found out later from Tom's people was to be his last one.
0: Yeah. Um, I had really wanted to interview him for the show, and he wasn't doing interviews and stuff much. And Peter Cooper, uh, who works at the Country Music Hall of Fame and has probably been the greatest champion of Tom T. Hall's career in, in more recent years, um, I basically was like, Hey, Peter, um, you know, <laughs> how, do, how does one get to Tom T and um, you know, Peter and I are, are acquainted and, and he kind of knows what we do and, you know, knows the podcast and um, was kind enough to kind of speak up on our behalf and say, mm-hmm. Hey, I think, you know, this is, this is worth doing. And so um, Mr. Hall graciously had me come out to his place in Franklin, outside of Nashville. Um, I was on a trip uh, to Nashville at the time. And so I went out there and we did it in person in his uh, little, cabin behind his house um just you know the two of us him sitting there having a cup of coffee you kind of
1: want that to be in a cabin don't you yeah
0: yeah yeah, you don't need that you don't want a uh you know like a boardroom yeah you know yeah shiny conference room exactly so we just sat out there and man he was amazing and we had this great conversation and then i did get this um message from the i guess she was kind of his assistant or whatever but she said uh Uh, She emailed me afterwards. She said, Mr. Hall asked me to tell you that this was his last interview. He will not be doing any more. You got the last one. He said you could play it again when he is gone, letting folks know you were the last to interview him with the help of Peter Cooper. So I was like, I wrote it back, and I said, was it that bad? (laughs) And uh, She she was like, no, no, he felt like it was that good. I'm like, yeah, I was just kidding. But, uh, you know, I think he just sort of was like – Hey, you know, I think I've said what I have to say about my career. And I was really surprised. Um, uh, Last week, I saw the Boston Globe did an obituary of Tom T. Hall. I was reading through it. And then it mentioned in 2015, Bob Dylan kind of out of the blue at the Music Cares event, just sort of like trashed Tom T. (laughs) Hall and was sort of mocking his songwriting and and, like mocking kind of the Nashville, you know, establishment at that time in the 60s that he was, you know, talking about. And um, and so <laughs> I asked Tom T. Hall about that in our interview. And when I read this Boston Globe thing, it it referenced the the Bob Dylan uh, incident, and it said the only on the record uh, response that Hall ever gave to this was his interview with Songcraft Spotlight on Songwriters. I was like, oh wow, well, look, well, that's us. I know those how guys. About that? Yeah. So uh, so yeah, I thought maybe um, it'd be interesting just to share a little clip. Um, and, and you can go online and, and Google Bob Dylan Music Cares mm. uh, comments and you can see it's several paragraphs long, so I'm not going to read it. But he kind of trashed, kind of personally trashed Jeez. Tom T. Hall, uh, which seemed really unwarranted. And so I asked uh, Tom T. about it. And this is what he had to say.
3: I don't know Bob Dylan. I didn't know he knew me. I was a little surprised.
0: Huh.
3: Uh, I have no idea what he was thinking. Or, but I do have this one Bit of it, I don't give a lot of advice to people, and most of the time I tell people, uh, "Let me give you some advice. Don't take my advice. <laughs> <laughs> I said, don't don't listen to a damn thing I tell you, because I don't know what I'm talking about half the time."
0: Right.
3: And uh, but we should not give old songwriters and old entertainers a microphone unless they're going to sing in them. <laughs> <laughs> you know, that, that ought to be a general rule. <laughs> but they didn't do that, and, you know, Bob, I don't know, he might have had a bad dream or something, I don't know. Yeah. I don't know him, I never met him. Yeah, yeah, no. yeah. I like some of his songs.
0: Yeah.
3: You know, uh, like everybody else, you know. So that sure. was not a, I, you know, we lived in two totally different worlds. he you know, lived in New York, I live in Nashville. No?
0: Yeah,
3: yeah. So... Uh, and God bless Bob Dylan. Yeah, yeah. I'm sure he's a good person. Yeah. Wow,
1: that's amazing. And I have to tell you, I don't think I would have responded quite that graciously. <laughs> I think, you know, Tom sounded like he was like taking it pretty well. Yeah. Um. And but I mean, that's that's one of those things where you know we we try not to you know like ask the hard questions, right? You know, that's not something that we're here
0: for. Right. The gotcha questions.
1: Um. But uh, but that is, I think, an important moment. You know, because it's, yeah. it's about legacy. Yeah. Um and it's about, you know, relationships between two
0: legendary writers and uh, I'm kind of I'm glad you had the courage to ask that question. Yeah. And I think you know, for me the the really poignant part was the end of the interview where he kind of talked about, you know, I asked him if he's still writing and and he um, you know, shared very openly kind of where he was on that and I thought, you know, we'd uh we'd share that little clip as well.
3: No, no, I don't pick up guitar much anymore. No. I don't feel, I don't know what that is. Hmm. But uh, uh, it's not something I miss a lot, like working on the road. Yeah. I never regretted it. I quit the road. You know, I have this uh, if I have a little recollection of being on the road, I'm somewhere in Michigan at, on the 10th floor of a hotel. Looking down at a tour bus covered in dirty snow hmm. that's my recollection of traveling on the road right, and that bus is dark and damp and sitting out there in the snow and i'm I know my way around a holiday inn,
0: yeah, yeah, well, you got off the road, you came. Back to your beautiful home. I thank you very much for welcoming me here today. This is an amazing place you got, and I really appreciate your time. This has been really great.
3: Well, Scott, we could uh, talk a long time and tell a lot of stories from the places we've been. I appreciate your time, uh, letting me tell my story. And uh, and I want to close out with another qualification. I'm not up to anything. I've had a good life, and uh, and uh, I'm I don't I'm not an expert in anything, and I don't have any agenda to push. And uh, so, if I've said anything that I was that I was uh, inaccurate in saying, uh, I would uh, I'd consider it a blessing to be corrected because that's the only way you can learn anything. Hmm. Just to get the facts. Yeah. So I'll leave you with that. God bless you.
1: Well, if those clips have whetted your appetite for more Tom T. Hall, and I'm sure they have, uh, you can hear the entire episode. It's episode number 67. Um, Go scrolling through our episodes on uh, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you happen to get them, and and check it out. Uh, It's it's kind of a way to pay tribute uh, to a great writer and a great man.
0: Yeah, and uh, as far as I know, he never did do another one. So uh, in ter- in terms of my knowledge, I'm going to assume that what his assistant said is correct. And that is indeed the final interview with Tom T. Hall. And, you know, I think we did the final interview with Mel Tillis. I think we wow. did the final interview with Red Simpson and possibly Irving Burgey, um, which is just, again, a reminder of why it's so important to have these conversations mm. and to be talking to these writers who have contributed so much to the art and craft of songwriting um, and just to be able to hear their stories while we can is truly an honor.
1: So again, listeners, thanks for allowing us to do this and for listening and uh,
0: we'll keep doing it. Part three. As a songwriter and producer, Rami Yacoub has been involved in some of the biggest pop hits of the last 20 years. Raised in Sweden by Palestinian parents, Rami's first massive international hit was Britney Spears' Baby One More Time, which he co-produced with Max Martin. He and Martin went on to score additional hits with Spears, including Oops I Did It Again, Stronger, and I'm Not a Girl, Not Yet a Woman. Additionally, he wrote and produced the Backstreet Boys' top ten single, Shape of My Heart, and In Sync's It's Gonna Be Me, which was the group's only single to reach number one on the Billboard pop chart. After co-writing Pink's You and Your Hand, he found massive success writing and producing for One Direction, including the hit singles What Makes You Beautiful, One Thing, Live While We're Young, and Kiss You. Additional hits Rami has written include Starships and Pound the Alarm by Nicki Minaj, One Last Time by Ariana Grande, Unstable by Justin Bieber, and the double platinum number one hit Rain On Me for Lady Gaga, which was one of more than a half dozen songs he co-wrote for her critically acclaimed Chromatica album in 2020. The long list of artists who've recorded Rami's songs includes Demi Lovato, Celine Dion, Carly Rae Jepsen, Five Seconds of Summer, Avicii, All Time Low, Selena Gomez, Jason Derulo, and Madonna. Rami, welcome to Songcraft. Thank you. It's great to uh, to speak with you. I'm really curious about your background. I understand that your parents were Palestinian immigrants and you were raised in Stockholm, Sweden and were a kid growing up playing in a heavy metal band basically and and listening to Iron Maiden and and Motley Crue and and a bunch of hard rock stuff that you know might be a little surprising given your huge success in primarily the the pop world um so I'd love to just hear a little bit about your your formative years and and the music that was uh, exciting you as a kid and and what made you feel like, you know, this music thing is something that I want to do with my life
4: um, Well, you know a lot about me. So I I'm gonna start off at the beginning. Yeah, my my parents my dad came to Sweden in the 60s uh, they're actually posting in Jordanian and They uh, my mom came I think four years after that So I'm born in Sweden and raised in Sweden. So I feel, you know, pretty Swedish without being blonde
3: <laughs> um, Man.
4: and, uh, you know, uh, to be honest with you, I started off, you know, very passionate about school. So even when I was in fourth grade, I was studying a lot, which is kind of weird. I just yeah. had this high ambition to, to, uh, to be the best in class, even to the point where we got a new guy to our class and the first day he was in class. I mean, I was a nerd, and he looked pretty nerdy, too. <laughs> and he, my my teacher asked a question. And I'm used to being the first one, and he raised his hands and, and, and knew the answer. And I was like, what the hell? <laughs> Who is this guy? And I was like, I need to be friends with him. Right. So I befriended him, and we actually studied every day for like three hours from fourth, fourth grade up until we started high school, because then we kind of went to different schools. Yeah. Um, and I... Music didn't really come into my life till I, um, yeah, I was listening to a lot of heavy metal, a lot of you know, Iron um, Maiden, Motley Crue, and 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 uh, you know, ACDC, and just and loving that. But my father really, you know, he had vinyls and he 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 he, he listened to, to Beatles and Tom Jones, hmm. and my brother had a Prince phase. So besides my before my metal phase, that's what kind of what i grew up with yeah my older brother had prince and my father had the beatles and and i know i had some friends that were listening to like early rap and stuff it wasn't i wasn't like into that and uh my best friend and my neighbor we uh we wanted to start a band because we wanted like we wanted to be two guitar players basically to, on stage just like you remember the guitar player ingram steen
3: yeah. sure yeah
4: Yeah, I mean, he was super fast. (laughs) So we wanted to be as fast as him. Right. And we ordered two acoustic guitars from um, a magazine, um, very cheap, like 50 bucks each. Uh, And one arrived and the other didn't. (laughs) So we were supposed to start practicing. And he had a guitar that was broken and had like two strings. (laughs) So I started playing on that waiting for my other guitar and it never showed up. And by the time, you know, Month passed by. I was like, maybe I should just play the bass instead. So I I (laughs) moved to be a bass player instead of a guitar player (laughs) in our band. And uh, it was not like a high aspiration for like we're gonna be famous because I really wanted to be a doctor or an architect. I just Hmm. loved playing. Yeah. And um, we um, we did a lot of covers in our band, and we practiced every day for like six, seven hours. Wow. Um, And. I never went to music school. I kind of just listened to music and took the notes out myself. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, that's how I learned to play the bass. And I, I got asked this question, well, what, when was my first song written? And I didn't know what songwriting really was. you know? uh, So I do remember writing lyrics without melody. It was more like a poem yeah. in the middle of my, you know, I was like 15 uh, when I was in my metal band. And uh, it was, it was like, you know, love on the battlefield will be your shield. It was like all this metal lyrics,
0: you know, <laughs> right, right. I still
4: remember those lines. Uh, yeah.
0: <laughs> and so
4: I think that was my first, it was like two sheets of lyrics, just very poetic, mm-hmm. but I I didn't sing to it. Um, And that transitioned to, you know, buying some recording equipment so we can record our band just to hear what we, you know, sound like, some tape recorders, and. Then we bought a keyboard and then a sampler because, you know, we're, we're, you know, kids and we just like, we, we liked where the equipment was taking us. It was just like explore, exploring stuff. Yeah. And we started, you know, playing around with chords and, and, and just drums and, and we, we got a gig to do some, um, um, it was like jingles or sp- it was like small music tunes for a radio station in Sweden called Power. Mm. So all the songs were called, had like the lyric power in them. But they could be like a house song, could be a R&B song. It could be very different genres. So that was like my introduction to music
0: basically.
1: Uh-huh. Yeah. You know after uh, playing in that band you, you and one of the band members Daniel Papalexis uh, started a production team called Easy Productions um, and I'm thinking about you know even what you said about being a kid and studying for three hours at a time every day and then what it must have taken to try to get your guitar skills up to like Ingve Malmsteen you know that, that's a study type of thing too and I'm wondering as you kind of moved into production work did you take that same kind of you know, study work ethic into production that you'd put into both schoolwork and, you know, guitar technique?
2: No,
4: because, I mean, D- Daniel, actually, he, he became unbelievably great. He could play the England Manson songs. He, he was that good, mm. you know? I mean, I, I was, you know, I was a bit more shy, um, and so the bass kind of fit me better, you know? So when we had the shows, I was kind of next to the drum set and just kind of like, cool, I'm in the background, you know? Um, but when we started buying the equipment, it was more curiosity, you know. I wasn't like I'm gonna make the best production in the world because I didn't I didn't have like the goals to be a, a like a, a producer. It kind of came when my mom, because I was still playing the bass and we had you know the, the little studio that we were working at, and I was practicing the bass skills on our kitchen table at night, and my sister's bedroom was was next you know the wall next door, and she just went nuts <laughs> each night. So my mom was like, maybe you should just move out, you know. And, I was like, maybe I should just try to do this because we kind of got some money from these jingles that we did, hmm. and I was like, you know, I can do something fun and I'll make a living. And you know, I moved out to a really small apartment, and I told my mom, you know, I'll I'll try this for seven years. You know, if it doesn't work out, I'll be twenty-five. I'll go back to school. You know, huh. I'll do college. Just, okay. It's all good. You know, um, and here I am, forty-six. Wow, so, amazing. and bold. I'm bold. <laughs> <laughs> Nothing wrong with that. <laughs> Nothing wrong with that, man. No. <laughs>
0: Um well for for some of our listeners who might not be aware of how important the the Swedish music scene was in the 90s there was a, a guy named Dennis Pop who produced All That She Wants for Ace of Base in the early 90s became a global number 1 and Everything kind of erupted in the pop world where you're seeing all these massive pop hits coming out of Sweden. Um, and Dennis, of course, worked with Max Martin, a name that that most people know as a, as a producer and songwriter. Um, but when Dennis passed away in, in 1998, uh, Max brought you in um, to work with him and kind of continued this... Almost factory approach to music production, for lack of a better word. I'd love to hear a little bit about how you and and Max first hooked up, and you know how you were approaching the writing and production process in those early days.
4: Um, I mean, as I said, I had the easy productions, you know, with my with Daniel, and um, we we did an artist in Sweden called. Uh, well, she actually was from. Uh, Houston she was American she was called Trisha McNeil mm-hmm. um, and she lived in Sweden because she was married to a Swedish guy and you know doing those jingles we 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 met this um, guy that took care of Trisha and he asked if we could do a song for her which actually was a cover for um, uh, it's an old Bobby Benton song called Ain't It Just The Way mm-hmm. um, so th- we did that and that blew up. That was a number one in Europe, uh, in most countries. And then we did her first record, and the follow-up single, which was an original song, was also huge called uh, Stranded. Mm. And in the midst of that, um, I've, I've known Daniel since I was a little kid, right? And I was kind of, I felt like I wanted to try something different. And I had a friend who, uh, who knew Max, and he connected us. So I asked for a meeting because, um, I mean, I always knew about Dennis and Max. And, you know, Dennis is the godfather to all of us because, I mean, he taught Max everything, yeah. uh, you know. And uh, um, But this was 97, it's, a, it's a, about a year before Dennis passed. Yeah. So um, I get a meeting and I do remember I was doing some songs in the vein of Sharon, which was the production company they had. Right. Kind of, you know, the NSYNC Baxter boy sound, yeah. up tempo, and it, it was kind of a bad version of their songs, but it was uh, sounded pretty good. Hmm. Yeah, and so I got the meeting with Max, and I played him some stuff, and he knew about my song on the radio, um, you know, because I think it was number one in Sweden at that time, the Lucretia song. Mm-hmm. And I played him with other songs, and you know, he was he laid it out flat. It was like, you know, you know, Dennis is sick, and. He can't really work as much you know and i need i need some help and we need some as he said some you know fresh blood into the team because it was pretty uh the the mood was not very you know it was a depressing mood there because everybody was so affected by Dennis being sick hmm. um so i came in and um had a meeting uh, a week after they called me and said you know um let's try you know, you're working with Max, and I obviously jumped on the opportunity, um, and uh, I, I do remember the first day coming into work, I actually met Dennis, because he was in there on and off, but he didn't really work, sure. and he was the nicest, he was like so amazing, He, he we started talking for like 10-15 minutes, I was super nervous, and he loved video games, he was like a little kid, <laughs> and I was playing video games too, and he asked me, like, oh, what do you play? I was like, I'm playing this Adventure game and I'm stuck at this place, you know. And he was like, "I finished the game." I was like, "Oh, cool." <laughs> the next day, he comes with like a, a Bible, like printed book with the walkthrough, and gave it to me. It just showed how, uh, I mean, you know, you know how good of a heart he had, and and yeah. and uh, I started working with Max, and uh, you know, we sat down and talked, and the first thing he told me was, uh, you know, uh, I know you're good at what you're doing, but you know, you have to work socially great with everybody here. You know, we're a team, and it doesn't matter how good you are. If you're not socially, you know, uh, you know, incorporating yourself with the team here and everybody loves you, then you can't be here because that's yeah. the, like kind of the code. Yeah. And uh, yeah, uh, and then we, you know, the first song we did was "Big Moment Time," and that was it.
1: I mean, you were part of production on several tracks on that enormous record. Uh, and then on the second album, we, we've got you as a co-writer and co-producer, I, I think on five tracks, including Oops, I Did It Again, which was a number one global hit. <laughs> What did it feel like? I'm, I'm assuming when you walk into that that group, you know that you're kind of on the way to success. That's where everybody's headed. That that's just seems to be the mentality. But when it finally happened, um, how did it feel? And did it feel like an arrival, or did it feel like a starting line?
4: It's weird to say, but I mean, I, I mean I'm going to be honest with you. Up until this day, I don't even look at charts or where my songs are at. Like once I'm done with a song, I can't really do anything to affect the outcome of it when it's released, besides, you know, being worrying, you know, and cloud my judgment for the next song. Like, if I'm gonna, I have people that actually just are constant on these websites of spins, and, oh no, I only got, you know, this many spins. I'm like, dude, I don't, I don't, I don't wanna know, I can't affect it. Why are you like, I don't care. So it, it was the same thing at that time. And at that time, the production, Sharon had a deal with uh, uh, Zomba Jive, which was the label for Backstreet Boys and Sync and Britney. To deliver, I don't know how many songs a year, um, uh, 12, 15 songs, full songs a year from the production. So, we, all we had time with was basically doing, you know, Britney, Backstreet Boys, and Sync, and then Britney again, Backstreet Boys, and Sync. So, it just kind of rolled over. So, and, and doing the second Britney record, um, just to show you that we, I'm not going to say I didn't care, but it wasn't really when we had a number one with "Baby one more time, right? We were I was working in the studio, and Max walks in um, and then walks out again. I don't know what he, we were talking about. And then he was like, oh, by the way, when, we're number one with Baby one more time. And I was like, oh, where? And he was like, the U.S. And I was like, uh, okay, when did that happen? It was like three weeks <laughs> ago. I forgot to tell you. Like, it, you know, it, it was... It was, and that's kind of the mentality. We just kept on working. Huh. And even at that time, he was like, maybe we should celebrate or something. And I was like, yeah, maybe we should. Like, it was like an awkward question. Should we celebrate? Because <laughs> this is a big thing. People usually celebrate. And we booked a dinner at this place on a Tuesday, you know, me and him <laughs> sitting having dinner. And then, we're sitting and he was like, should we order maybe a champagne, maybe? I was like, yeah, maybe, yeah, that's celebration. Let's order that's champagne, that, that's celebrating, you know? So we have a glass of champagne and, you know, and and then he was like, you know what, a cigar, that's celebrating. I was like, yes, I don't smoke. You don't smoke either. Who we was just coughing and it was like 11 o'clock and it was kind of like we finished dinner. We had like one glass of champagne each and he was like, you know, we have a lot of things to do tomorrow. Maybe we should just go to bed. I was like, yeah, it, you know, it, it That just shows the, the mentality we had. Just, right. It was just kind of like, we love what we we're doing. We didn't really... I didn't have like, oh, now I've made it. I'm jumping into this... Sprung, like, this is going kind to of spring me to success. Mm-hmm. I just love music.
0: You know, it's interesting looking at the credits from some of that stuff. Like with the the first... Britney album, your credit is a, a co-producer, but not a writer. By the second Britney album, you're a co-producer, co-writer, and then you have "It's Gonna Be Me" by In Sync, um, which was their only Billboard number one pop single in the U.S. And that's an instance where you're a co-writer and actually produced uh, the record solo. I'm interested in, you know, I use that term factory, which I don't, you know, necessarily think is a great description, but it's a term that's been used a lot, I guess, for, for that period in, in that production style. But you were obviously sort of coming in, learning that culture, learning that process, and then taking it and, you know, doing it yourself. Now you're producing solo. Talk a bit about that. Production and and writing approach that has been called a, a factory approach, and and how you sort of absorbed the way that they did things there, and then kind of put your own spin on it.
4: I do remember that you know I came on. The thing is, when I came in, I came in kind of as a brown kid because hmm. we're all Swedish, even though I I feel like I'm Swedish because I'm born in Sweden. And like the beat guy, yeah, he's he's good with beats, and I wasn't really. I mean, I listened to some R&B and, and stuff, but I had my own sounds with me, and they obviously had their sounds. You know, the library they had, when I combined my more dirty library, you know, with some more R&B stuff, uh, um, and it was kind of utilizing what we had. We had, like, you know, five kicks and 12 snares and 15 hi-hats and some loops, and we kind of reused them because there was no sounds. And, you know, the, the, the factory approach you, you're, you're talking about is, um, I don't know how to put my spin on it besides, you know, we, we try to do everything differently each time, even though with our sounds, like tweak them, even trying to find new snares or, you know, where we can find them. Mm-hmm. But, you know, getting a good snap, we had to do it ourselves. We couldn't go to Splice or all these websites, you know. If you listen to music now, I mean, there is so much, you know, there's such a huge catalog of great sounds that you just kind of subscribe and you get, you know, amazing sounds. Mm-hmm. That was not the case. And I had my own kind of. I wasn't so anal about, you know, I, I do remember having a small argument with Max, or a lovable argument, when doing Babylon with Time, right? There is a shaker coming in every four bars, I think. Mm-hmm. It was like down, 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 Right. just like a shaker and he came in when I was doing that shaker and what I used to do I was playing the shaker for like maybe 32 bars uh, just and not quantizing it and picking out you know like human quantized, okay. picking out the one that felt good
3: mm-hmm.
4: and Max came in and was like what are you doing I was like well I'm picking out whatever shaker feels the best that I nailed that has a good emotion I was like no you gotta quantize it <laughs> I am like no I don't like, yes you do. I was like, no, I don't still <laughs> like a ten minutes argument about quantizing that I have to quantize shit. It's still unquantized by the way, so <laughs> you know. Um, so I kinda brought in a little of that. It was more of a
0: like capturing the imperfections.
4: Exactly.
1: These songs that we've been talking about were done at Sharon Studios, and then there was a move to uh, Maritone Studios. Uh, but it obviously didn't slow down the train of success. Um, you had Britney Spears' third album, Britney, with "I'm Not a Girl, Not Yet a Woman." Um, you guys had just come off the Backstreet Boys' Black and Blue album, which had, you know, "Shape of My Heart," huge song there.
3: Looking back on-
1: You know, usually when you start working on things, and when you entered that environment uh, with Max, it, the idea must have been, well, let's you know, let's try to make these things work at radio. Then you get to a point where things are clearly working at radio, and then all of a sudden, there's a point when radio just sounds like you. <laughs> and I'm wondering, did yeah. you just walk into work every day thinking we're going to nail these songs because this is the we are the sound?
4: I mean, we knew everybody was copying the sound, and, and I mean. Every sound has its lifespan, right, and it was kind of came to a point where it like you said, where you started to sound like us, besides our songs being out, but there was you know there were so many other people doing the same thing um and it was kind of came to a point where kind of stopped working hmm. if it, that i mean, cause you know Dennis started the whole thing with ACE of bass, I remember which year that was yeah. and Dr. Alban, right mm-hmm. like these sounds come from there um. And uh, you know, I do remember. And then I don't remember which years this was. Uh, Max stepped in to do Kelly Clarkson, which was more rock, you know. And I mean, he also obviously comes from a rock background too, because he was in a, in a metal band. Hmm. So uh, like me, <laughs> but right. um, and uh, um, it didn't. I, I can't. I mean, this is like you know, 20 years ago. Um, uh, I don't remember us being, you know, you know, shit, we gotta reinvent ourselves. Uh it just kind of naturally went that we kind of tried some different stuff. It wasn't like a stress about, you know, uh we had this amazing thing going, we gotta keep it up. Because I mean, in the end, like I said, if, if you know, there there is only so much till the glass gets full, I believe, till mm-hmm. you need to reinvent yourself mm-hmm. finally, you know.
0: Yeah, yeah. You know, one of the the big hits that you had uh, during your time at Maritone Studios was uh, "You and Your Hand" by Pink. I'm not- the song that you wrote with Pink and Max and Dr. Luke, um, but was produced by Max and Luke. And one thing I find interesting is there's not like a cookie cutter kind of thing in terms of song credits. So, you know, sometimes you're a producer, sometimes you're a writer, sometimes you're a writer and producer. And, you know, I'm curious, um, I'd love to hear more about that song in particular, but, but also just how, um, you know, you kind of approach like, Um, for you, are writing and producing two entirely separate disciplines? You know, where do they kind of intersect for you versus where are they sort of separate practices?
4: I mean, it's all individual depending on the song. I mean, when it comes to the Pink song, compared to, for example, It's Gonna Be Me, I mean, that song we wrote together. So naturally, you know, when you write a song, you do a... A, you know a, a bass production which i did and then i finished it up with the pink song it that was just a bonus for me because i didn't write with pink it was a song that i did with luke and max and um um i got a call and they say, well pink wants to do the song and <laughs> so i was like okay i mean so I, I wasn't even part of the production or even you know meeting pink yeah so yeah. it's very individual depending on the song, you know.
0: That's that's something I think that, that um, you know, in pop music in the last 20 years has become so much more common that people might not realize is just because there are multiple songwriters' names on a song, it's increasingly rare that all the people whose names are on that song got together in a room at the same time. You know, things are, they evolve and somebody's working with this producer over here and then somebody, you know, brings a bridge from this thing that they were working on over here and then that comes in and you might wind up with, you know, seven, eight writers on a, on a song and, and half of them maybe never met each other.
4: Yeah. Uh, it, it's more so now than it was before. I mean, we used to do everything ourselves. So, like, when we did all those early records, you know, it was me, Andreas, Christian London, you know, Max, Dennis, Jake, David, and Per. Like, we were the team, and we kind of kept it that way. We didn't need yeah, outside help, sure. if that makes sense. Um, and we kind of had our thing going. Um, but nowadays, it's kind of, you know, if you, like you said, it could be, like, 12 people on a song. It's not like those 12 people were in a room. It doesn't work <laughs> right. that way. Right. It always starts off with two or three people. And then, you know, then that song gets sent off um, and somebody might not think it's, you know, all the way there and they try to rewrite whatever the label or the artist wants and maybe the artist, like, can I bring in my writer to try to fix it? Mm -hmm. And then you get another writer on it and then you maybe have some other people producing it and nowadays if you produce a song, they, you know, you take a cut of the publishing. Yeah, right. Which was unheard of before um, because, you know... It's it's everybody wants a piece of the cake. If that becomes a radio hit, but in the end, if you're 12 people on a radio hit, that's what like eight percent. You get six percent after the publishing takes yours. That's not gonna buy you a house, really. Right, right. No matter how big the song is. Um, So it it definitely has shifted.
1: You know your your writing career. You can almost sort of like you know look at it in seasons in terms of these studios you know from Sharon to Maritone and then we come upon the Kinglet Studios season um, and that is a significant one because we see a sort of a shift and instead of your name next to Max Martin's on all these songs we see your name next to Carl Falk and you guys became kind of a, a writing and production team together uh, songs like What Makes You Beautiful a number one single for One Direction. You
3: don't know you beautiful.
1: I'm curious about uh, what was it about your relationship with Carl that might have been different from the way you worked with Max?
4: Um, I mean, your point on when you say it's seasons, I see it as chapters. Uh, and, it, I mean, I had, you know, uh, a great run, you know, with with Max and the team, um, which started before meeting Max, but it really sprung off with Max. But by 2005, I was really tired because I've been working since, you know, the early 90s, 24-7. I was really drained and we've had a lot of success and I just needed a break. And I was supposed to take a one-year break, sabbatical year, which turned out to be five years. (laughs) Um, So that's, you know, 2010-11 is when we started Kinglet Studios. Um, And it wasn't intentional. It was, you know, one year passed by uh, and then second year 2007 I bought a house in LA and I was like you know I want to try to you know build a team here and 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 right here and um, I just got it didn't really work out because I was so used to work with a team um, you know in a house I do believe the strength is in numbers if you work socially great together and I just had two weeks of these sessions where you know, uh writer comes in, and then at 3 p.m., they're like, okay, so I have to go to the other session. I was like, other session? I mean, I was like, what other session? It was like insane. I mean, we haven't even finished the song. I mean, we took our times with the songs, you know. Um, and two weeks into that, I was just dizzy. I was like, I'm not ready to go into the music business again. <laughs> cause this is it. Yeah. So um, I kept on being on sabbaticals, um, but I figured I need to find a Swedish team to work with. Um, and uh, me and Carl, I mean, I've met Carl before. We have mutual friends. Um, and I, I started, you know, going to the studio and helping out on some songs. And it just kind of fell natural. You know, at, in 2010, we were working on some, I was helping him with some Savage Garden stuff, I think. And um, we just, you know, started working every day together and, uh, it's kind of like you meet the one you're gonna marry. It's very rarely you go down on your knees and you know she says, "I hope she says yes or no." You kind of know when you know, you know, <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, you know. You your wife tells you what ring she wants before you buy it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so we were working for some months, and it was like, "Where should we get, you know, the next studio?" Because we were sitting in a very small apartment, um, and uh, from there on, we started Kingly Studios. Um, and I mean, Carl is amazing at keyboard. I mean he's very musical, you know he knows notes he he i mean he's he's amazing, yeah. so it was a good match between me and him because I was more you know of a melody guy and, and writing songs, and he was so incredibly fast and, and great at producing uh, so we just we just clicked that way
0: you know it's interesting um to me, as we look at your career and, and we see what you kind of built your foundation on was artists like Britney Spears and, and NSYNC and Backstreet Boys. And, you know, even in a way, One Direction is kind of the next uh, generation of that same concept, which is like the young, um, you know, boy band type of type of thing. And, you know, my perception is with that music, especially in the 90s, that those artists are basically, you know, put into the hands of the producer who has so much um, input in terms of shaping the sound and and the way the the records are, are put together. Um, but as we kind of progress into your career, we see things like Nicki Minaj's Starships and, and Pound the Alarm. You worked on uh, the Rebel Heart sessions for Madonna um, and songs like Devil Pray. Um, and these are artists that are more. Adult artists, you know, for lack of a better word, they have kind of a, a a vision. Probably, I would guess a little bit more involvement in terms of of composition. And I would imagine that maybe it's it's a bit of a shift from kind of um, you know driver's seat to collaborative type of you know you're working with with artists who are also writers and and kind of have their own specific vision. I'd love to hear a bit about that kind of adjustment time from, from the nineties into another era where I would think you probably have to kind of adjust your approach to writing and production a little bit to, to accommodate a different type of artist.
4: Yeah. I mean with Nikki, not so much because we kind of had the whole songs and she kind of did the, you know, her rap. So she wasn't, I never met Nicki Minaj. <laughs> you know, well. they, they, Yeah. Um, they, uh, You know, usually they have their own, you know, recording engineer. And so we, for Starships, for example, the whole song was written that way as it is. And me, Wayne Hector, even wrote a rap. (laughs) You know, we don't write raps. Uh, But it was like a singy, rappy verse. And um, and at some point, I know they said she tried to do it, which was like... you know, I'm very grateful she did not end up doing that. And she did. It. They were like, "Can she do her own thing?" And I was like, uh, "Of course!" And <laughs> right. she did her own thing on it. And I mean, the only thing she kept was like "Twinkle, twinkle, little star." and then, then that—that's the thing we had in there. Mm-hmm. So she kept that in the verses. Um, so I never met her. So crafting those songs were kind of as we did in the old days. When it comes to Madonna, was actually Avicii. You know, may he rest in peace. Uh, he invited, I mean, I knew him very well, and he invited me and Savan and, and, and the team to, he was working on it and asked if we want to join in. Um, uh, and, you know, I mean, Madonna's Madonna was like a bucket list. Like, I yeah. had to do it, you know. <laughs> um, so that was more of taking a passenger seat. I mean, it was, you know, she was, she's very hands-on what she wants. Um, she was part of every minute of that session, mm-hmm. those sessions. So that was very different compared to, you know, their Uh, taking the driver's seats on their early artists, you know?
1: You know, after that uh, Madonna record, you had charting singles with Ariana Grande uh, and then worked with Lady Gaga on the Chromatica album, uh, which uh, had a number one Billboard pop single with Ariana Grande on that record.
0: It's
4: coming down on me
1: And as I'm looking through, you know, you mentioned the bucket list aspect of working with Madonna. And then you see uh, acts like One Direction and Britney, that you were there from the you know, very early stages. I'm curious, um, is there kind of a sweet spot for you? Do you like finding artists while they're still kind of, you know, at the beginning stages of their career? Or do you like kind of being there at the crest of the wave? Um, which is, is anything particularly inspiring to you about a stage in an artist's career?
4: Um, I love artists who know what they want if that makes sense like yeah. you know if you have an artist coming in then, you know you end up talking for hours i mean because you don't know each other and then you're going to start writing you know you want to know about the artist and they'd be like you know i want to have this sound you know because i have a visual for my style or my shows and everything and it just helps you tremendously because sometimes you have an artist you know coming in and saying you know, I don't know, I, I just want to hit song. It was like, okay, I mean, that doesn't really help me because I'm not the artist. I mean, there's a vast ocean of styles and, you know, in production and melodies you can do. So it's it's very, it's like throwing, you know, throwing us in the swamp and try to get out from there, you know, so I really love an artist having an opinion. It's not annoying. It's like actually a blessing.
0: You know, when you look at the the start of Britney Spears' career, like there was no pop artist on the planet at the time who embodied Pop artist more than Britney Spears. I mean, she was the sound of, of pop music at that time. And I think, you know, if you fast forward to today, that probably Ariana Grande and, and Lady Gaga, you know, are probably contenders for that same kind of position that, you know, they're just massive uh, superstars in the pop world. And when you think about, okay, the same guy that was working, you know, on baby one more time is the same guy that's working on rain on me with lady Gaga and, and Ariana Grande. And you've got 20 years separating these records, but they, they don't sound like each other, but they both sound very much, you know, uh, uh, like indicative of, of their time and, and it really capture kind of the moment, Um, and as somebody who has been writing and producing for, you know, even longer than 20 years, but having this kind of incredible run of success, what do you do to, to just sort of keep yourself in the game and and keep yourself current and keep your ears open to, to make sure that you're not getting stuck in one era, but that you're kind of evolving as music is evolving.
4: I just work with people that have the finger on the pulse. There's so many young writers coming up now that have a you know a different approach to songs because you know the music has changed a lot you know and I don't work in I don't work with a million people like I stick to my team I work in Max's house and so we kind of stick to that but then I have five six writers that you know I love that I work with but it took maybe 25 to get to those six writers you know hmm. uh, to to try uh, and they're I mean they're half my age but you know they, we can walk in and. Nowadays, you can have a you know. It's hard because I work a lot with Ryan Tedder, right? And 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 I was talking to him, and we said, you know, I mean, he he comes from the old school writing too, like me and Max. And we had this conversation where it's like, what I thought, you know, eight nine years ago or ten years ago, is like this is a hit song. I could I knew it, you know, like it's a, it's a pop smash. It doesn't apply anymore. Like mm-hmm. it, it's it's uh, it's it's so so different. You have these young kids coming in it's like you can make a song work just out of TikTok. To be like, oh this is this feels TikTok. I was like, what like what feels what talk tick like I'm like <laughs> it's so and it's it's like, you know, you've you've had songs that don't follow a formula. It's just about a, a vibe and a and a taste and it's you know, it, that has blown up that uh you know, a lot of songs I'm like, really this one? you know, it's a good song but I wouldn't think it would be like this groundbreaking. So I kind of put my trust in other people hmm. and kind of follow the process, but still with my expertise because they kind of look up to me and they start to do music because of me. So it's a good marriage and it's you know, just about trust. And I don't walk in like, okay, now we're going to do this. Yeah. You know, It's kind of like, let's see what they do. And then you know, I add my stuff and then we, we have just a perfect marriage to that. So that's how I kind of start, try to stay relevant.
0: Yeah. We've, we've kind of noticed like from doing this show that there's sort of a, a thing in Nashville, which is its own, you know, songwriting universe. But you have this thing where like young hungry writers come to town and a lot of times they wind up hooking up with older experienced hit writers who have like a great track record. And it's almost like, um, this, uh, opportunity for younger writers to apprentice and the, what the older writer gets out of it is fresh ideas. And what the younger writer gets is that the, the more experienced people, they, they know what to do with a great idea. They've got the experience and the instinct. And you don't hear about that really as much. I don't hear about that as much in pop music as I feel like I do kind of in the Nashville world. So I think that's cool that you've been able to kind of do that in the pop world is like you, you've you've got the expertise and you're willing to work with young guys who might bring in some fresh perspective and you know you're going to do something with their perspective that they couldn't do you know on on their own um and it's a really cool thing
4: you're pretty on point on that uh, i think and and it's a win-win situation because they look up to you and i have you know at least a <laughs> I I know what I know, and I'm like, mm, this is not good enough, let's try to work on this. Mm-hmm. And it's not like, like no, this is perfect, Like because they, they look up to you, but I also trust them in their process. Yeah. And mo- a lot of these young writers, they can just, you know, it, a lot of them just have an open mic, and they just do three runs of melodies, which I have implemented myself, you know, mm-hmm. because before we used to just sit in the room and write melodies, and then like, oh, that could be a great chorus, and then like, oh, that could be a good verse, and we have like the, you know, the voice note recorder on the phone on but when I get a if I have a track or you know get sent a track that's amazing I usually just turn on the mic and I sing through a chain with auto-tune compressor and reverb like kind of what you know a lot of the R&B writers do do yeah. and I just sing from start to finish like for three and a half four minutes and I do three runs of that and then I listen through everything, and then I start marking things out. Like, okay, this could be an amazing chorus, and this maybe is a good chorus. This is a verse, 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 and I color them. And then I start puzzling together the whole song. Uh, so I've, that, that I've implemented from them, but there's so many good, you know, uh, upcoming writers, you know, that 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 I love working with. So so it, it is a win-win situation, and you're kind of spot on that.
1: You know, one of the most fun music movies of the last few years was the Will Ferrell Comedy Eurovision Song Contest, The Story of Fire Saga. And I remember watching that thinking, man, they just nailed it. These songs in this movie, they've just nailed the whole Eurovision thing and the Scandinavian pop and, and all that. And and I was just, how did they do it? And now I realize how they did it. You did it. Yeah. <laughs> you, you wrote a bunch of those songs. and And that must have been a blast.
4: It was the most fun I've had in years. Because... I've never wanted to write for the Eurovision. I've been asked to write, but I, its I mean, I don't know. It just, it, 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 it was never my thing. And I, I don't know if you've seen Eurovision, you know, you, they all sit on their different tables in like Sweden and you wave, like the writers are there, like, it's, uh, it's not my thing. But when they, when they did this thing, it was like, yes. Because I've, through the years, I'd be like, I could totally, win a Eurovision with my song but I'm not going to do it you know like I said, like since 15 years back but I never wanted to do it and when this came to the plate it was just kind of like all my dreams come true okay yeah. let's just go for it you know <laughs> um, and it was I had so much fun especially meeting Will you know and, and recording him it was I mean I'm not starstruck but meeting him was just like are you Will Ferrell are you serious yeah. I mean like it's <laughs> yeah. unbelievable yeah um yeah yeah so it, it was it was super fun and it, it also was it wasn't like is this cool enough or is this but i mean it feels like songs that could have won the eurovision you For know sure. yeah but yeah i was super blessed to be part of that
0: well from britney spears in the late 90s to justin bieber in in 2021 with uh songs like unstable and, and somebody from his most recent record you have made a mark on pop music uh, no doubt with some of the biggest names in the pop world and uh, Rami we really appreciate you taking some time to uh, share a bit about your process and and your career I feel like we've just skimmed uh, the surface but this has been really fascinating thanks so much for for taking some time today
4: all right thank you guys appreciate your love
0: thanks for listening We'd love to stay connected with you, so please
1: take a moment to subscribe to Songcraft via Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your podcast
0: app of choice. If you like the show, we ask you to consider rating us and leaving us a good review. Word of mouth is important, and letting other potential listeners know what you think of the show helps us tremendously.
1: You can also sign up for our email list at songcraftshow.com and find out how to help support us at patreon.com songcraftshow.
0: And you can follow us on social media by searching for Songcraft Conversations on Instagram and Songcraft Show on Facebook and Twitter.
1: And finally, be sure to check out our friends at the American Songwriter Podcast Network at americansongwriter.com. Thanks, as always, for listening and for your support.